uh, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you very much for coming this morning. Let me um, uh, just start with the safety announcement, which is my uh, first responsibility this morning. Um, in the highly unlikely event of an emergency, we'll use the, uh, the door that you came through, go down into the street and then assemble outside uh, St Matthew's Cathedral. There's also an exit at the back if the problem is uh, at the front of the building. So with that out of the way, uh, let me again thank you for coming. I'm Andrew Shearer. I'm Director of the Alliances and American Leadership Project here at CSIS. Uh, and I'm delighted to have with me uh, this morning two of my uh, colleagues and very close friends. Um, Heather Conley, who's Senior Vice President for Europe, and Mike Green, who's Japan Chair and um, uh, and also um, Vice Senior Vice President for Asia. Um, we meet, of course, uh, in interesting times. Uh, we've just in the last couple of weeks uh, had, a, had a festival of summits. Summitry is in the air. Uh, we, we had um, uh, the G7 summit with the rather spectacular sort of um, uh, fallout from that. We've had uh, the summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore and of course uh, we're into the NATO summit uh, and we also have another summit uh, to look forward to with Mr Putin. Um, so uh, summits uh, are in the air and the other thing that's really very live is the discussion about alliances and when Heather and I started talking about this event um, it took us a little time to settle on the title uh, what is the future for America's alliances? Because depending on the time of day and your blood sugar levels, um, you, you, could, you could have gone for a lot of other titles. Um, it, and, you know, in, in more despondent moments, you know, titles like uh, 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 America's alliances, why bother? Uh, uh, do America's alliances even have a future? But I think we, we settled on a, a more neutral title because... Um, it seems to me very important to, to take stock, to be clear-eyed, uh, to take some deep breaths, uh, to look beyond some of the surface noise, some of the, the tweets, and to, to uh, really assess where the alliances are today and where they're going. Um, if, you, if you look at the history of alliances, of course, this isn't the first time we've been through a period where alliances are under, under strain. The, the argument, the debate about burden sharing, for example, goes right back to the 1950s and the start of alliances. There have been previous crises uh, in America's alliances in Europe and also in Asia. And, um, and there have been previous presidents, uh, including most recently, President Bush and President Obama, who have uh, expressed their concern about allies' commitment to the alliances and the amount of the burden that, that America's allies are, are carrying. So, of course, there's nothing new in that debate either. I think what is new and what we're all grappling with, though, because it's the first time this has happened in our lifetime, um, we've got uh, an American president for the first time since the Second World War, who is openly questioning the value of alliances and asking us, I think, to, to um, step back and rethink uh, our assumptions about alliances. Uh, he has a point. Uh, America's allies have 
been free riding to, an, to, to varying degrees. And I think uh, together we have perhaps been a little culpable of taking the alliance system for granted. I think since the end of the Cold War, in, in many ways, we, we stopped making the case for alliances to our publics. Uh, we stopped refreshing the arguments for alliances, and that's where we, where we find ourselves today. So uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to ask um, Heather to give us a bit of a health check on, on the alliances in Europe. Um, there are some positive signs. Uh, uh, the spin, spin uh, apparatuses are, are working overtime at the moment and pointing out that, that many of America's European allies are in fact increasing their defence spending, which is obviously good news. Uh, there's more readiness, uh, I think it's fair to say, in NATO's forces in Europe. Uh, and, and some of those trends are very positive. On the other hand, uh, it's still the case that I think only something like four of the NATO countries are meeting their, their commitments to the 2% target. So, uh, Heather, why don't you take us away? Well, Andrew, thank you. And Mike, it's a great pleasure. We, um, uh, to say I've been talking about NATO for the last, well, two years, but really concentrated the last two weeks, I think it's, it's fantastic that we have a conversation about this alliance. Um, it, because it's not an issue, it's structure. It is how the international system works, how U.S leadership, power, and presence works through. So it's, it's, the, it's the skeletal infrastructure of the international system. So that's why this is so important. Uh, it's not who said what and the sort of the, the today's salvos of leaders or body language. Or we get so distracted by that. This is structural. It's generational. Um, so this is why I'm so glad we could be here uh, and so glad, Andrew, that you've been working on this project and this structure, how important. Um, you know, we had a smidgen percentage to think, well, maybe, maybe this NATO summit was, was going to be okay. We have a very robust agenda. A lot of issues that the U.S. wants to see happen counterterrorism operations in the South, and uh, a new and, and bigger Iraq training mission, um, continuations and operations in Afghanistan, a more focus on readiness. It is there for the taking. But it's very clear two hours ago that uh, we are going to have a very different uh, summit. Uh, you mentioned, Andrew, that President Trump has questioned the alliance system. Certainly, I think, you can look back at his, his uh, many statements, the 80s and the 90s, his views about uh, allies are that they take or they drain from the United States. They don't multiply, they don't amplify, they don't strengthen. So we have an absolute difference and backwards opinion of the value of, of allies. And there was a, a quote that uh, President Trump said, I think it was two weeks ago at a, at a rally. And, and this is, for me, this is the, the sentence that I think we need to unpack a little bit today. Sometimes our worst enemies are our so-called friends or allies. That, for me, crystallized it. Because if we think our allies are our enemies, we are in a, an absolutely different place. So this is not a president that's questioning. This is a president that is undermining that structure and the very premise of those, of those allies. Happy to unpack into the defense spending, because we spent a lot of time 
Boy, more people know about NATO direct and indirect costs than I thought anybody would. Uh, and we can talk about that, and that it's vitally important. And Europe hasn't done enough. But this is something more fundamental, in my view, and that's what we need to focus the American people on, not necessarily 2%, no 2%. Thanks, Heather. Mike, why don't you do a health check on the Asian alliances? Well, you know, the alliances in Asia have been great. I don't know what's wrong with Heather's people. But, um, <laughs> <coughs> uh, no, there are, um, there are real questions being asked in capitals in uh, our Pacific alliances. I think it's fair to say the G7 summit outcome process discussion, uh, the Singapore summit with Kim Jong-un, uh, the trade um, uh, war, uh, and, um, and now NATO summit is, is being watched, I think, in Asia um, to try to understand where the President of the United States is uh, in terms of um, his view of alliances and American power. We, we've had crises and near crises before, and um, just to quickly tick off a couple, um, some of which happened before some people in this room were born, I know, but, but it's, it's worth remembering that alliances go through um, tough times. <clears throat> um, in the 70s, after Vietnam, which was traumatic uh, for the alliance uh, system in Asia and Europe, um, the Nixon shocks, when Nixon announced in 1969 that he was going to pull back, uh, in particular from Southeast Asia, um, the Nixon shocks when he went to China uh, with only two hours notice to Japan, our principal ally, to open up a new relationship. Uh, and then in the 70s, uh, Jimmy Carter, who promised to pull all troops out of Korea. Um, that was a pretty bad time. It was a very bad time, actually. Um, you can read about it in my new book, uh, <laughs> My More Than Providence, A History of American Foreign Policy Good Strategy time. in Asia. But um, I happened to be writing the chapter on Jimmy Carter as the NSC cables were being unclassified. And when you go through them, and I worked in the NSC for five years, the chaos um, uh, it, it caused by Carter's pledge to withdraw from Korea was uh, in every line of almost every cable. Um, it was debilitating. We're, I don't think we're that bad yet. Um, in the 1980s, there was a pretty bad patch with Japan over trade friction. In 1988, in opinion polls, more Americans said Japan was a threat than the Soviet Union in 1988 because of uh, trade deficits, actually, and economic insecurity. Um, the big difference then was that Ronald Reagan and then George uh, Herbert Walker Bush really, really cared about alliances, believed in a common uh, uh, front for European and uh, Pacific alliances, and we weathered that patch uh, quite successfully. And in the early Clinton years, there was quite a bit of what um, uh, journalists like Funabashi Yoichi called drift in the US-Japan alliance, because Clinton came in uh, promising to rectify the imbalances with, China, with Japan and to copy what he thought was Japan's industrial policy. And he, and he essentially, for um, a year and a half, put a hold on all significant diplomatic advancements with Japan to try to put pressure. And then in 1995, just dropped it, just completely dropped it, um, and uh, instead strengthened the alliance with Japan. Um, in all three cases, the, the, the presidents had particular ideas that really were traumatic for alliances. In all three cases, the bureaucracy and the institutions were very sticky and resisted that. And in all three cases, um, particularly Clinton, um, the presidents had contextual intelligence. They realized that what they were doing to the alliances was damaging our interests, helping our adversaries, and they adjusted. 
Even Jimmy Carter, who was probably the stubbornest of them all, he never withdrew. He withdrew one Hawk battery from Korea. Um, so the question with Donald Trump is, you know, how much is, um, is he going to change? Uh, the, the Singapore summit was particularly uh, shocking uh, because, um, not that he met with Kim Jong-un, but that after the meeting, he said he would stop US military exercises with Korea. This was a proposal pushed on him by Putin and Xi Jinping, and explicitly and repeatedly opposed by Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan. Um, and so it wasn't a unilateral decision, it was a, essentially a bilateral decision with the North Koreans, endorsed and proposed by the Chinese and the Russians, um, over the objections of our largest ally in Asia, Japan. Um, and I'm sure I won't put Andrew on the spot with no great um, satisfaction in Canberra. Korea is a more complicated story. The opinions are divided. Um, I can't think of a precedent for that. Um, and so the, the question really is, will the president continue down this road? I hear people in Tokyo and elsewhere saying we're back to Trump 1.0, the Donald Trump of the campaign trail, not the Donald Trump who um, you know, supported uh, the, the uh, national security strategy, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which are very alliance-centered. What I hear is a sense that, that the president is now decoupled from the national security strategy, which has been articulated and is generally being advanced by the secretaries of state and defense and the National Security Council. The president is a, something of a free agent. And the question uh, is, as I said, will he, will he adjust? Um, will the professional bureaucracy shape his views? Um, I think the NATO summit is, is, a, is going to be watched with keen interest um, around the world for what it says about uh, the president's um, you know, behavior towards allies and thinking about alliances over the next few years. Um, last thing, um, it makes absolutely no strategic, there is no strategic case for what he's doing. Um, all you need to consider is that for Moscow and Beijing and Pyongyang, the American center of gravity, the, the, the most important source of our um, deterrence and dissuasion towards them is our alliance network. And so China and Russia and North Korea have been targeting our alliances. So it makes no sense that we would aid and abet, even though, as Andrew said, there's a lot of homework we and our allies have to do uh, in terms of defense spending, readiness, um, and uh, we shouldn't minimize that, that's important. But at a strategic level, we're pretty much helping uh, our adversaries with what we're doing right now. Let's um, just drill into that question of threat a little more, because it does seem to me that it's, it's right at the, the heart of this. I mean, IR theory would suggest that if there are rising threats, and I think most people would say that there are rising threats in Asia, uh, and also that there are aspects of Russia's behaviour in particular in Europe um, that, that point to, to an increase in the, the threat, and therefore alliances in theory should be tightening. And I think at the sort of functional level, you do see a lot of that. We're seeing it with NATO, we're seeing it in a stronger US-Japan alliance, I think a stronger US-Australia alliance, um, more effort to acquire high-end capabilities and to build interoperability in these alliances. So that piece seems to be working, and yet you've got the president going seemingly in a kind of different direction. Is that fundamentally because he doesn't see China as a threat? Uh, is it because he doesn't see Russia as a threat? And there's some evidence, I think, for that proposition. Well, take the Russia part of that. And, and obviously, the Russia issue is so complex here because of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. So there, it, it even heightens 
um, the, the political scrutiny. But I think the president, once again, before he boarded Air Force One to go to the NATO summit, I don't know if Putin is a friend or a foe. He's a competitor. Um, so I, at some basic level, if the commander in chief does not believe his national security strategy, which is very clear on Russia and China as great power competitors, the center of gravity is alliances. So I, I you know, Mike's decoupling term, you know, and it's exactly the schizophrenia that we've approached to this, the more the president is working against allies, the stickiness of the institutions and the bureaucracies. So when the German defense minister was here two weeks ago, you know, there were some tough meetings, but you know, everyone was going, it's okay, it's okay, you know, we're with you. The institutions were understanding the importance of the alliances and working through difficult issues. We disagree on several issues. We've got to work through them. But yet the president has such authority as commander in chief in our system, no one can change his verbal direction of it. So we have these two planes of institutionally things are continuing to go, conversations, mm -hmm. military cooperation, intelligence cooperation, that's all going. But at the upper level, what we're seeing today fully on display in Brussels is that it's falling apart at the very top. We've had yesterday, there were several bipartisan statements coming out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, basically trying to backstop if President Trump, uh, for some reason at the Helsinki summit, would attempt to recognize Crimea as Russian, uh, that they would put immediate non-recognition uh, a law, strong 98 to, uh, to, to resolution on NATO and how important it is. So you hear these, it's sticky, but no one can counter the president when he does what he is doing right now, which is degrading the alliance. That to me is the, 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 the conflict that is playing out and the confusion. What do you want to believe? Who do you want to believe? Do you want to believe Secretary Mattis? But you have to believe President Trump, he sets the tone for our foreign and security policy from the executive branch. So I think <clears throat> uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis is probably the best allies Secretary of Defense in at least three decades. Um, that may be a little unfair to Bill Perry, who was very, very good with alliances, but he's one of the, the best Secretaries of Defense of the post-war period when it comes to understanding the importance of alliances, making them more interoperable, joint, credible. Um, he's made more trips, for example, to Asia um, I think probably, well, I don't want to get the number wrong. He's made far more trips to Asia than any of his recent predecessors. Um, I'm not sure about Europe. Um, but um, he's trusted and liked. Um, and that, that's important. You know, the historical examples, um, Carter's pullback from Korea was quietly slow-rolled by the Secretary of Defense, then Harold Brown. Um, the uh, the uh, Bill Clinton uh, trade uh, confrontation with Japan was slowly reversed by Bill Perry and Joe Nye in the Pentagon. Pentagon often, which is, with all respect to the State Department, the real custodian of military alliances in many respects, um, often steps forward in these periods of confusion and drift and solidifies things. And I think Mattis is doing that. Um, uh, the other thing that is actually quite different from the earlier examples is support for our alliances in Asia in polls in the United States is very high. In, in, in some polls, um, you can look at Chicago Council on Global Affairs, German Marshall Fund. In some polls, it's the highest it's been in decades, particularly when asked if Japan or Korea are attacked, should we come to their defense? And the numbers are well over 60% in some of these polls, which for a hypothetical question about going to nuclear war potentially is very robust. It's a little lower for NATO. Um, 
uh, and support in those countries is high. There was the Lowy poll in Australia when Donald, before our election in 2016, this Australian poll at Lowy, showed that about 50% of Australians said, if Donald Trump's elected, we should distance from the US. Then, six months after he was elected, th that gap disappeared in terms of support for the alliance. Um, there is some degradation of support for alliances because of what we're describing, but in general, my impression, and the polls seem to bear this out, is that in Japan, Korea, and Australia, the key alliances, the biggest, uh, the most um, uh, robust alliances in Asia, um, there's a, almost a structural recognition of how important these alliances are because of Chinese coercion in the South China Sea, because of North Korean nuclear weapons. And I would say, although the polls aren't done, we are working on this and we'll have a report in the fall from CSIS in the Congress as well. There's, a, there's as ro robust a bipartisanship around alliances as we've seen in decades. So th that's all structure, as, as, as Heather mentioned. A lot of the structure and institutions of alliances are, are in some ways more uh, robust than they've been in a long time, which is good because the captain is, um, has taken off autopilot <laughs> and uh, we're gonna see how much turbulence these alliances can take, I suspect. I just wanna press you both a little further on this kind of stickiness question and I sense that Heather, you're maybe a shade more pessimistic yeah. than, than Mike. Um, so I want to really sort of push you both a bit to look forward, you know, two years to the end of the first term and, and maybe six years to the end of a potential second term and to really sort of um, uh, talk about that stickiness. And is there a difference here between Asia, where the US faces a, a rising peer competitor and Europe where it faces a, a declining power that's, that's uh, a peer only in one area of national power which is nuclear weapons and in pretty much every other regard is a, a rapidly declining power. Does that, does that affect the stickiness of the alliances? So I mean just to, to pull on, on Mike's point, I, I think uh, while yes in the last 17, 18 months, we have seen where Congress on a strong bipartisan basis has, has come and said NATO's important, and certainly we see where in the budget, the European Deterrence Initiative, the funding has been more than the administration has supported. Um, the institutions, Pentagon, state, others, the intelligence community, mm -hmm. strength, 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 strength. But there is, and this is what we're not talking about enough, there is a cost to the constant degradation. And this is what no one is talking about. And this is why, particularly for, I can only speak for Europe, that sort of the opening of multi-fronts, the tariffs, energy, uh, Iran, Paris, Jerusalem, I'm gonna have to add more fingers here, that <laughs> is, just one finger will do in this case. Oh my, uh, I, no comment. Um, the culmination of that, the kicker is the allies are democracies. Democratically elected leaders have a response to their public opinion. And this is what we have to weigh in. And so the more we ask of our allies, and you know, this is the irony, we're beating them up on one hand, and they were saying, can you do more in Afghanistan? Can you do more for this? Where are you in the Sahel? Why aren't you helping us on this and this? Wait a minute. We wouldn't want to be treated like that. This is, this is the international relations golden rule. We treat others as we wish to be treated. We should be. So we're making it impossible for our allies to help us if they wish 
to help us. And this is where, at the year and a half marker, I think year one, everyone was trying to figure this out and doing a broad uh, figuring out of how do you address President Trump. I think the Brussels summit is really the marker where there's going to be a different posture with our allies. You're going to see, I, I, because I have to, uh, a more confrontational, because they have to protect their national interests, whether that's against tariffs, whether that's politically responding to this. And so now we're in this negative cycle that um, I'm not sure, I hope and I cling, but Secretary Mattis isn't enough, in my view, to counter this growing, overwhelming sense of it. And that, for me, is, is, is the concern. We've, we've managed well now. I, I, I don't know if, if this, and this week is really a, a tipping point, in my view, for really the clarity for the, for the president. Because if we come out of Brussels, horrible summit, the UK visit, because of a lot of demonstrations speaking of public opinion, and uh, that doesn't turn well. Uh, and then we have a Helsinki summit that will make the Singapore summit pale in comparison, then we're in a new position, I think. We are in a new position, and we can matter about the body language at the summits. That, to me, is what we really, because that's, that's the turning point. I don't know how you, how you really walk back from that. There's no hoping, there's no wishing that Secretary Mattis can help this. It, it shifts in a new position. So, Mike, um, game this out a bit for us in Asia. Because um, if you look at the situation of your closest allies in the Indo-Pacific, let's just take uh, Australia, mm -hmm. <clears throat> South Korea and Japan. What are their options, really, in a, in a, in a real world, in a, in a fiscally constrained world, in a, a world with a very rapidly rising China, where does, if Heather's right, what does this look like? Well, I think the options, um, I, let me put it this way. I, my sense is the Europeans are waking up to the Russian challenge, whereas Asian allies have been, um, uh, Japan's been a, a, awake to the China challenge for two decades. I think Australia, I'd measured in months or years, but wide awake. <coughs> um, uh, uh, South Korea is a unique case because for understandable reasons, Seoul is uh, focused on the North Korean threat. But the North Korean threat, of course, has been rapidly growing in terms of nuclear and chemical and biological weapons and missiles for two decades or more. So um, the Asian allies, I think, have a, have a much, maybe, a clearer sense. Uh, they didn't, you know, they, the, the idea of economic and political integration in Asia is much less mature than Europe. Um, I, we've done surveys on this at CSIS that are on our website, but in general, Asian intellectuals and leaders have soured and gone skeptical about this. Um, uh, it never was anywhere near as mature as Europe. So Europe is really coming, I think, out of a much happier place to a much sadder place much more rapidly. Um, another, and so for that reason, Andrew, the, the, I think, uh, you know, I, look, the Australia-US uh, alliance is moving towards integration interoperability, jointness, not just bilaterally, but with Japan mm -hmm. and others. The American alliances in Asia, unlike Europe, of course, are bilateral alliances. And all of the Article Five um, commitments are different. They're all different. And it was a patchwork put together in the midst of the Korean War. Um, what China doesn't want, 
and which uh, uh, and what Russia doesn't want is for that series of um, patchwork bilateral alliances to start moving towards closer interoperability integration and potentially collective security among them. And I think, I don't want to overstate it, but that is a trend or a direction that in baby steps, Japan, Australia are embracing. Japan's most important security uh, policy change in the last 10 years was changing the interpretation of the Constitution to allow joint planning um, uh, integration in the use of force, what NATO would call out of area perhaps, um, not only with the US but with Australia. And then of course the Quad was Abe's idea. So this, this is a trend in Asia and it's because they see the, not just the pernicious effects of Chinese coercion, with whom of course all these countries like the US want good economic and political relations, right. but the power shift is more dramatic than in Russia. We have a declining power causing trouble. Um, I, really quickly, there are a few other differences that make American alliances maybe a little more robust, and I am also more worried about Europe and NATO. Um, we Asia experts, every once in a while, to avoid eating too much stir-fried sea slug and thousand-year-old egg, take trips to Europe so we can enjoy wine and cheese. I just came back. I'm worried about Europe much more and NATO much more than I am U.S. alliances. Part of it is the whole um, Nigel Farage populist thing, which really doesn't exist in Japan or Korea or even Australia, really. You have you know, some cases, but they're really still quite marginal. Um, so there's that ideological component. Historically, the America First movement, which we're seeing a little bit of, um, was anti-Europe, not anti-Asia. It was not against American yeah. commitments and Asians and alliances. And it, was, it goes all the way back to George Washington's farewell address. Foreign entanglements, avoid alliances. That was about France and Britain. You know, uh, Asia, the Pacific, Japan were still a gleam in our eye. Right. So there's some really different ideological and historic reasons and roots for what we're seeing with Europe, um, but also structural. Just the rapid rise of Chinese power uh, is different from what we see with Russia, which is pernicious and dangerous, but not um, a threat to the overall balance of power. Mm -hmm. And so that makes, I think, uh, the, the Asian uh, allies choose integration jointness, but also more hedging. You're going to see more independent capabilities from Japan and Korea in the future. That's right. Um, I just want to turn back a bit to this question of burden sharing and really um, ask you both to sort of, we're a bit sort of tangled up around the axles on this, I think, and um, you can see in the president's mind that, that, that he has this, this sense that, you know, um, the 2% commitment's actually money that allies should be paying the US for providing their security. There's a real sort of tangle of, um, I think misunderstanding about burden sharing, even even if you look just narrowly at the question right. of defence spending, which is different from defence capability, which is again different from alliance capability, and then open the aperture wider, the contribution of allies when it comes to intelligence sharing, peacekeeping, development assistance, stabilisation. How how today should we be thinking about burden sharing and? What do the alliances need to do to, to, to change, frankly, and, and capture that? Right. I mean, uh, in, during the Cold War, we asked allies to do 4% of GDP. Mm -hmm. uh, today, it's 2%. It, it is a, a signal of commitment. Right. Now, within the 29 uh, NATO allies, the size of GDP of Germany uh, for Europe, the United States versus Estonia, you were talking about massive difference in funds. So even that 2%, again, it's, it's a signal of commitment. But you can spend 2% brilliantly 
and create that interoperability, that power projection capability uh, to do both collective defense and out of area of operations. You can spend 2% incredibly poorly, designed never to do anything. You're using it for in internal force right. posture and things like that. So even within that 2%, you can, you can reach it, but it doesn't matter. So you really, we, we've become a little intellectually lazy, to be honest mm -hmm. with you, to say that 2% is everything. 2% is, is significant, and we need to look at it, but it's all exactly about what you want to do with it. But the point, and, and this is sort of the maddening part, um, President Trump is right, President Obama was right, President Bush was right, President Clinton was right, President, you know, President Reagan was right, it, you go the whole way. Europe had to do more. But we accepted, in some ways, uh, a reduced commitment because the U.S. wanted it done the U.S. way, by the U.S., for the U.S., and we paid and were willing to pay that cost. Mm -hmm. That's the other little part of this. Uh, so I'm all about getting the allies to do more. But the allies, they are democracies. It's not because the U.S. is forcing them into it, though we must apply pressure. They have to come to this themselves. And I think now Europe, between uh, events, should have happened in 2008 in Georgia, 2014 Ukraine, the migration crisis in 2015, um, and now the, uh, an American commitment that's unclear, we better get, they better get a move on, and, and I think that will incentivize them. But before I turn to Mike, again, I'll go back to sort of, this is, this is not about 2%. That's just the two by four by which yeah. uh, the, uh, you know, harming the allies. The president's view, and it is singularly the president's view, maybe a few others around him, you owe us. As he said to Angela Merkel mm -hmm. in her first meeting in the Oval Office, you owe me one trillion dollars for the decades of defense. Well, we were there because the United States wants to fight a war not in the United States. We want, the European security was America's security. Mm -hmm. It wasn't owed, it was shared. And if, if we don't go into a concept of share, and this is a one-way street, you owe me, and when you pay me, you will owe me some more. I think the right. Koreans sort of felt that experience in the trade discussions. Yeah. Thank you very much, you owe me more. It gets back to my original point. Do allies drain or do they amplify? For 70 years, we saw it as amplification. Now we see it as a drain. And I don't think anything, anything that NATO could do would still be insufficient because it cannot change, in particular, the, the president's uh, mindset. And that's, that's the fundamental problem I think we face right now in, in the NATO context. Mike? So the, Heather's right. The, 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 the president's uh, predilection to pick you know, something that fits on a fortune cookie, um, the size of the trade deficit, you know, how much spending on defense um, is deeply problematic. Um, you know, Japan, Germany could spend twice as much, and if they bought tanks that they don't really need um, at five times uh, the current cost as industrial policy, uh, that wouldn't really help that much. Um, so what you buy, as Heather says, and what you spend it on matters. Also, um, readiness, training, interoperability, mm -hmm. jointness, all these things that are uh, ways, not means, um, matter a lot. 
and risk matters. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, Australia is in a unique position as US ally um, because it's willing to take high risk early on in a crisis and get a seat at the table. Um, uh, you know, other countries aren't willing to do that, they spend more. So you know, the willingness of an ally to take risk, to risk casualties, Canada took per capita really serious casualties in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And it's maddening the president gives them and other allies no credit at all for that. So um, the actual amount spent is, is misleading. In fact, in the late 70s, the Congress used to require burden sharing reports right. from the Pentagon. And you know, countries like Japan started spending more in Korea, but they just used it as an industrial policy. They didn't buy stuff that was really um, needed. So it, it's a superficial thing. Um, the other thing we get from alliances, and this is something the president clearly doesn't recognize and has never mentioned, is influence at the level of the international system on, all, on, on a whole range of issues. And I suspect that the president's going to find that out big time when it comes to trade. You know, the biggest challenge we have, and frankly, Europe and uh, Japan and uh, Korea have, uh, is, um, is Chinese uh, mercantilism right now. So the best way to deal with that is numbers. That's what alliances are about also. Uh, TPP, TTIP with Europe. Go from a position of strength to negotiate bilaterally with the Chinese. But instead, what we're doing right now is, is shooting at everybody. It's sort of like the, the sheriff calls together the posse um, and then starts shooting at them. It, 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 he, and we will find we are isolated in this trade war. Um, and uh, we're going to end up uh, doing far more damage to ourselves than if we had actually thought about alliances and like-minded states and coalitions. So it, it, it's, there's going to be some, it's going to be, a, what did President Obama call it, a learning opportunity, a learning moment, teachable moment? Let me very quickly um, uh, add one note of, of alarm not alarm, pessimism about Because we Asia. haven't had it Because we haven't had it enough. I'm, I'm, re I'm pretty confident about uh, US Australia, US Japan. Uh, pretty confident. I, I worry about Korea, um, and I should mention that. Um, President Trump, after a summit with the North Korean leader, with absolutely no prior warning to even his own staff, said that he'd like to get troops out of Korea. That's a, that's a Christmas present in June for the North Koreans, Chinese, and Russians. And I think he means it. And um, it worries me because um, historically, uh, the US has understood the maritime allies and the maritime domain, but it's always been a little reluctant to be tied down on the peninsula. And there's a bit of that in the services and the Pentagon right now. And there is a view, which I think is very misguided, that's starting to emerge, not from the president, but from some strategic thinkers, that to deal with the China challenge, we need to tighten our lines uh, around the first island chain, Japan, Australia, um, and consolidate to deal with China and Korea's a liability, which is sort of like a football coach saying if the, before the whistle blows, okay, the first play is we're going to run back to our own five-yard line so we can consolidate our offensive line. It, it's, it, it completely ignores um, the, uh, a whole bunch of things which you can go into, um, including the fact that China will quickly pocket the strategic influence over the Korean Peninsula and double down its focus on maritime right. alliances, or the fact that um, North Korea will take advantage of that vacuum um, I suspect that the biggest fight in Asian alliances over the coming few years is going to be our presence in Korea. And it may end up being even worse than NATO. We'll see. Uh, there's no call for this in the Congress. Um, but, uh, but, but the president has opened a door, and there are people who want to you know, keep pushing it open. just want to 
come back to the question that Mike raised before of public opinion, which relates to this, and that is, um, you know, what you just articulated, and it's the subject of your book in many ways, is America learnt at enormous cost that defending America um, in the continent doesn't work. It's not the best way to do it. Um, and you built a, a posture based on forward presence alliances. And you did that. Um, uh, many countries all around the world benefited from that, but you did it because it was fundamentally in America's interest, America's national interest. It seems to me, Mike, that you know, when you were talking about American public opinion, there's still a reservoir of uh, support, that opinion is kind of tractable on this. How do we go about remaking the argument for the forward presence and for, for this costly, and it is costly, everyone knows it's costly. It's costly in terms of money, it's costly in terms of young American lives, um, and, it's, and the cost is disproportionate and will remain disproportionate. So how do we remake those arguments? It's going to be harder now because our politics have become so tribal. So Republican members of Congress who are robust internationalists, very pro-alliance, deeply anti-communist, deeply skeptical of North Korea, are um, singing the praises of what the president did yep. in Singapore um, because they don't want to be primaried. And they need uh, the president still has robust support among the Republican Party. Um, that is another reason why I'm worried about Korea, because the support for the alliance instinctively is there, mm -hmm. but it's not clear how deep it is. And Korea, the U.S.-Korea alliance does not have the same deep constituencies uh, that the U.S.-Japan alliance has, to be really candid. Um, uh, Korean Americans are increasingly a, a really important part of American political life and the bilateral relationship, and, and, uh, and, and may step up, we'll see. But it's complicated by the fact that Korea itself is so divided politically right now between left and right, which right. makes it hard. A bit like Europe in a way. It's when our, Japan is not that divided. I don't think Australia is that divided. It's interesting that the alliances that are having the most difficulty are the ones that are internally split and struggling with their own identity and relationship with the US. Um, so in the case of Korea, um, it, maybe it's a little less certain. A little less certain. I, 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 I'm still more worried about NATO, but Korea now is, yeah. is, a, is a concern. Well, in that same argument, I think in, when the press reports came out that, uh, and we do this periodically, reviewing force posture in Europe, mm -hmm. and the president wanted, to, again, a very anti-German focused sentiment on German, uh, how many U.S. forces are in Germany. I think that the benefit that we are, we are able to explain, and this gets to your point of why are we deployed all over the world? I mean, we, we have lost, this is our joke, uh, one of our titles was back to basics, like helping understand, well, why in the world did we create this thing 70 years ago? It was the most cost-effective way to protect the United States and to ensure its economic prosperity. Absolutely. And we have to bring that argument forward to a new generation so mm -hmm. they understand that. It is expensive, there is a cost, but it is so much cheaper because when a region destabilizes, well, look at Syria, we're paying a lot in humanitarian aid, the consequences of that, it's more expensive with instability, it's uh, a benefit with stability and prosperity. Europe provides, a, this is where it is you know, helping people understand, well, if you push all the US forces out of Stuttgart, you've just eliminated AFRICOM. Uh, your African command, which is based in Stuttgart, 
The, the European facilities, the medical, uh, medical facilities at Longitudinal Labs, they are mm -hmm. world class. They help us transfer into to the Middle East. You know, alliances are about location, location, location. Uh, it's because they are strategically placed that we can get too quickly to a conflict and stabilize it so it never comes to the United right. States. This is back to basics. This is why we do it. And our partners and allies give us, you know the figures in Asia, I mean the host nation support. It's not that we're paying for this 100%, my goodness, can another country do more? Absolutely. We have these, they are good deals. I, I know the president believes that un, unless he's negotiating that it's not a good deal. These are good deals. They can always be better. We always need to look for efficiencies. Allies always have to do more, but this is, this is good for us. But bad on us, we haven't explained it like this mm -hmm. for a very long time. We explain it as a benefit to allies. The benefit is wholly for the United States, but you ask an average American about that, and they will say, why do we always get called, and why do we always have to pay? And, and we have to do a better job. That one's, on, I think, on us a little bit. I do think it's going to be tough, though, I, to, to go back to my first comment. I think the tribal politics make it hard. We'll make it really hard through November. Um, ultimately, um, I, I, I think I agree with Heather. We should be explaining it. We should be making the case. Um, the, the historical examples of the consequences of American retreat, whether it's pulling off the Korean Peninsula in, um, in 1950, or um, hold, you know, there's multiple examples, um, the, the, the cost-benefit analysis. But ultimately, I, I fear it's going to take us getting burned. And we're going to have to get burned, I'm afraid. And um, it may be the trade war that's coming, which is already hurting uh, Republican Thomas. students in Ohio and Iowa and elsewhere. Uh, we may get burned by the North Korea summit tree, which is increasingly you know, turning out to be what a lot of us thought it was in the first place, uh, a non-agreement. Um, uh, it, it, it may take um, a, a little more um, obvious and visible demonstration of the consequences uh, of, of um, of retrenchment, really. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm a little. I'm worried that may be what it what it takes for, in terms of American politics. Well, we've taken this for granted for so long. You have to pay the cost yeah. when it, you, you never, as your mother would always tell you, you never fully appreciate something until it isn't there. And uh, we just hope we don't have a, a disappearing alliance structure. The other well, question. We better start working on that's the, right. the next alliance structure. The that's other question right. is, you know, once we get past the midterms, I, I, we do a lot with Congress here at CSS, and I, I, I find on the Asia side, I think you probably do in Europe, there's a lot of bipartisanship Absolutely. in both houses, Senate and House, uh, around our alliances. And in the National Defense Authorization Act, for example, there was a move by Republicans to, um, to have language that would not allow the president to withdraw from Korea without congressional approval. Republican, it was Republican members, Republican leaders said, no, 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 we don't want to tie the president's hands. Um, then he made the statement in Singapore, and I think the next NDAA, the next Defense Authorization Act, you may see a lot more checks and balances in place too. So that, um, that would be um, uh, the, the place where members will be looking for arguments. Because right. uh, instinctively they get it, especially if they're from exporting states. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, so hopefully I'm wrong that we'll have to actually get burned to learn our lesson again. So at this point, I'd like to um, open the floor to our audience. Please wait for a microphone to come. Uh, we'll come down here to the front first. And please um, uh, identify yourself uh, and ask a short question rather than making a long statement. Uh, John Trupp, uh, Director of Policy Planning, Polish-American Congress, Washington office. Question for um, Heather Conley. You mentioned uh, that the uh, Brussels NATO summit 
um, is likely to be a turning point. Would you give me the um, worst possible outcome of that turning point? Not <laughs> that I want you to play the role of Cassandra, uh, but the, w what is the worst possible outcome? Thank you. Well, I, I always joke uh, when I uh, talk to reporters, you know, we get paid to worry. That's, that's really our job uh, to, to think about that. Uh, you know, the problem is we won't truly know how, how I'm saying this, how bad or how disastrous the summit could be until after the Helsinki summit, uh, after President Trump meets with President Putin, to be really honest with you. Um, so in the next, you know, tomorrow, if sort of all of the G7, if the president does not sign on to the NATO declaration, then you know we have set some world-breaking history uh, in that. Now I will tell you, uh, it's been great, talk about great bureaucracy, leadership, that NATO has already agreed on several things that did not require the leaders to bless this. And I think you're seeing this more and more. Trying to get policy, all agree, we don't have to go to the heads of state or heads of government. We, we all agree, we're good, just keep going and don't let this go. So statements have already come out on NATO, Afghanistan, military mobilization, but that declaration is going to have some big, um, big areas, what the, the slogan is, uh, the 430s, which is uh, a rapid uh, readiness and uh, mobilization, meaning in 30 days, NATO can deploy 30 squadrons, 30 ships, and 30 battalions in 30 days. Now, this is a huge challenge because NATO hasn't been uh, until recently in the practice of rapid deployment across Europe to get to the eastern flank. Uh, and because the four NATO battalions that are in the three Baltic states and in Poland have to be rapidly reinforced. They are a tripwire right now, but if that tripwire is tripped, you need to have that process. Um, uh, the Republic of North Macedonia, uh, now that uh, Skopje and Athens has resolved um, their name issue, some more things to happen. Uh, in that declaration, the, the Republic of North Macedonia will be welcome to join NATO. If that doesn't happen, I don't know where that process um, is. And there are other issues, the NATO-EU cooperation. So if there is no declaration, then we are in a different place. And it will be interesting to see how NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, handles this. He will do things by um, the, you know, statements by the Secretary General, but they are not agreed allied instructions. Fast forwarding to Helsinki, if in using the language of the Singapore summit, President Trump would agree with President Putin that NATO's missile defense in uh, Central Europe this, the site in Poland to be operationalized this year, the site in Romania is provocative and that he would think about changing that. If NATO is hosting a major, major exercise in the fall around Norway, if he would say that's provocative and the U.S. Put, would perhaps uh, withdraw from that or it's rethinking its own force posture or rethinking the NATO enlargement agenda, this gets back to the Republic of North Macedonia, that is changing fundamentally what policy is. Do I believe that would be the case? No, but I think if I've learned anything in the last two years, I learned to predict the unpredictable. Let's have a happy question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, Mr. Griffiths. 
Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Paul Griffiths from the Australian Embassy. Uh, question, I just wanted to know what you think prospective partners of the US are sort of making of alliance relationships at the moment. I'm thinking more of Southeast Asia at the moment, but there might be some other comments you can make. Well, um, we've talked about our larger alliances uh, with Australia, Japan, Korea. We, of course, have treaty uh, alliances with um, Thailand and with the Philippines, um, which, um, to be fair to the Trump administration, were in, in some trouble before he became elected in the case of the Philippines because of President Duterte's um, pre-Trumpian <laughs> uh, policies. Um, uh, Proto-Trumpian, whatever he, you know, uh, is creating all sorts of challenges um, because of his unpredictability, because of his um, responsibility for extrajudicial killings and, and things, um, and then in Thailand, the coup. Um, and I, you know, Philippine the opinion polls still show the Filipinos love us. In Thailand, it's much more uh, negative. The Thai views of the U.S. have deteriorated quite a bit. Um, and so between those two alliances, also the Philippines Maritime Alliance, uh, the Chinese coercion, um, uh, the Philippine fishermen still can't get back to Scarborough Shoals since the Chinese cut it off. It, it all makes the Philippine alliance, I think, stickier, to use the language uh, Andrew used. U.S.-Thai alliance has bigger challenges, continental. Um, uh, the Chinese uh, 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 coercion, if you will, is not so obvious. Uh, the Belt and Road is quite beneficial, although there are concerns in Bangkok about uh, debt traps and what happened to Laos. Um, on the whole, I think our alliances, including with um, the Philippines and with Thailand, uh, can weather this tough spot. And one of the reasons is because, um, I'm not saying this because you asked the question, Paul, but I think uh, Japan and Australia in particular are stepping up um, and helping to um, fill in some of the vacuum uh, in Southeast Asia um, from U.S. Um, politics right now. Uh, that's not a long-term solution, but, um, but it's quite evident. People criticize the Quad, the U.S., Japan, Australia, uh, U.S., Japan, Australia, India, Quad. Um, we'll, we'll be doing more work on that here, but I do think it represents an explicit recognition for these larger maritime democracies in Asia that they have a, a case, a stake in, 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 in Southeast Asia and others, um, you know, remaining free of coercion, being part of a more open Indo-Pacific that includes China, but is not um, uh, an area that uh, coercion is possible. Um, so rougher in the Southeast Asia alliances to be sure, but, but some reason to hope we can sort of weather that uh, going forward. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, in the middle with the red tie. Uh, Mike Mosetic, PBS Online NewsHour. I'm just back from traveling around in Europe and heard something I never thought I would hear which is sort of a consequence and corollary of what we're talking about, is that people in foreign ministries and other ministries are contemplating a world without American leadership. Now, I can't say they're planning for it because it's sort of hard to plan for, but the fact that people are even talking this way stri strikes me as more than remarkable. Yeah, Mike, uh, and it sort of gets to Andrew's question about what's the what's the hedging strategy here for for Europe. Um, I, look, I think Angela Merkel said this first and earliest. We're on our own. Uh, the, the, the Europeans, even in their global the EU global strategy, talks about strategic autonomy, but it is a it is a it is a buzz term. Uh, to me, uh, uh, the practicalities of that. 
um, we are so interwoven and intertwined, Europe would have a very, very difficult time sustaining itself militarily without the U.S. It simply doesn't have the airlift uh, capabilities, the, uh, the Libya operations in 2011, which began as a sort of a trilateral U.S., French, British operation that transitioned into NATO. Quite frankly, even our most capable military allies in Europe, the UK and France, were unable to sustain themselves for a prolonged period of time. As I said, I, I don't say that to sort of, you know, Europe, you have no choice, uh, but we, we rely on them and their help. They rely on us. That's how that shared uh, feeling should be. I don't think Europe has a hedging strategy. Um, it uh, certainly China has made some overtures in the trade department to the European Union, say, hey, uh, we can work together here. We can we can form a coalition and isolate the U.S. The EU rebuffed that. But if this is a prolonged stalemate, do they start looking at other opportunities? Um, right now, uh, I would say Europe's resolve vis-a-vis -vis Russia still remains strong, despite the fact that the Italian government is now uh, going to be openly challenging those assertions. They've rolled over the next sanctions for the next six-month period. It is us. The, the U.S. is unrolling, in my view, at the presidential level, potentially the Russia policy. Europe doesn't have a place to go and uh, has not developed its military capabilities to any point where it's, it's quite frankly going to be so focused on enhancing its external borders to deal with uh, the migration crisis, which quite frankly is no longer a migration crisis, it's a full-blown political crisis. That's where their energies will be going. So um, and just a, a quick point to, to follow on. You're absolutely right. What makes Europe feel differently right now is that not only do we have the challenges externally, Russia, challenges from the South, the challenges the U.S. is throwing on it, it is the challenge from within, mm -hmm. uh, the illiberalism, uh, the populism and nativism that are now going to the heart of major European countries that are going to be changing their outlook, their policies, their outwardness. So when we elect, uh, when, when you see the election potentially, a future British Prime Minister that doesn't believe in uh, the UK's nuclear deterrent, is very against NATO operations, when you could have a, a coalition in, in Germany at some future point that doesn't believe in Germany's role in NATO. I mean, the problem is the forces from within are, uh, are, are degrading this liberal democracy coalition, which is what it is. It's a military alliance that protects democracies. If the democracies themselves are changing, what are we protecting? Can I just add um, real quickly, Andrew, the, 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 the same could be said of, of Asia, basically. You don't see, uh, Japan and Korea are both going to introduce uh, more sophisticated strike capabilities, surface-to-surface -surface <laughs> missiles, but it's not an it's not an autonomous defense. It, 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 if anything, I would argue that our allies in Asia um, and Europe, um, although I defer to Heather, are becoming more dependent on interoperability with the US and joint mm -hmm. operations with the US, not less. So we're not talking about decoupling. And even if any of these allies chose that option, this is, would take this would have to, it would take a long time. It would be well beyond the Trump administration. So why do that if this may be a temporary uh, problem? Um, the, the real danger here is what Heather just pointed to, I want to amplify it, the lack of cohesion 
really uh, 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 increases the probability of confrontation with Russia and China. Um, we ironically, you know, after decades and decades of American leaders wanting a concept of the West that spanned the Pacific and European alliances, NATO, Japan, Australia, Korea, we are, we, before November 2016, we're at the best place we've ever been, uh, both in trade with TPP and TTIP, with security, with cooperation on new challenges like cyber. We were the closest we had ever been in the post-war period to creating the kind of solidarity among our alliances in the Pacific and in the Atlantic ever. <laughs> um, and, and now it's, you know, not gone, but on hold. And the danger I worry about is not that all of a sudden Germany will become our enemy uh, or Korea will become independent or something like that. Um, what I worry about is that the wobbliness, the lack of cohesion will embolden Moscow and Beijing and perhaps North Korea mm -hmm. and increase the chance of confrontation. I, 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 this is not about containing China. This is about stabilizing the international system right. uh, to have a more productive relationship with China. This will embolden adversaries and competitors. Um, I don't believe the fundamental American or allied view of our security interests has changed, but they may think it has changed, and they may think there are opportunities. That's what's so bad about this, in my view. Um, you know, our alliances, I think, will be will survive. It's what the adversaries uh, think they can do with this, and how dangerous that creates, uh, what dangerous situ situations that could create for us. Well, I think that's on that happy note. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, that's kind of um, as close to uplifting as we're going to get. Um, <laughs> This week, it seems to me. Well, uh, we're sort of fastening our seatbelts. <laughs> yeah. We're in Buckle for a up, ride. Everyone. Uh, uh, the good news is it could get worse after the NATO summit. Yeah. Helsinki. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Thank so, you, Mike. Um, uh, really, with our, our time being being up, uh, it just <laughs> remains to me. Uh, I don't mean that in the, <laughs> in that sense, but uh, our time this morning here is up. Uh, I, I'd just like to thank everyone in our audience uh, here in the room and online, and ask wait, 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 you wait. to. And I'm going to I'm going to jump in here. Oh. I want you to thank Andrew Shearer, yeah. because this is Andrew's last public event at CSIS. He's being reclaimed. <laughs> Back to Australia he goes to serve his country with great distinction. He has led our alliance project, has been a thought leader, a great colleague. Please, if I may, Mike, don't, apologize, don't clap for us. You need to clap for this gentleman right here. Thank you. Thank you. And now you can say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you all very much. That's, it's very kind of you. I've had a, a a fantastic three years here. Um, I owe that to, to Mike. Uh, it's been a real honour to, to work at CSIS. Great colleagues, you've seen them on display here. This is just a small bit of what they can do, trust me. Uh, and I've had a, I've had a great um, couple of years and it's been fantastic working with both of you. Thank you everyone for coming. Thanks. Thank you.
Thank you.